John chapter 4, I want to start in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, or ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself and his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I get will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And I want to stop there. We'll get to the rest here in a, a couple of minutes. It's an unusual situation in their world. To us, uh, a guy at a well, a lady coming to draw water, uh, even though this is not something we have to do, we can imagine, wouldn't seem like that big a deal. Okay? The way that we see each other has definitely changed in the last couple thousand years. And then on top of that, there are layers of national pride and, and religious views and things like that to this story as well. So, just real quick to kind of get why she thought it was weird he was talking to her. She is at this well. We know from what we'll read a little bit later that there's a circumstance that's brought her to the well in an odd time. Usually, all the ladies would go out and get the water at the same time during the day. But she's at this well at an odd time. Jesus is there by himself. The disciples have gone to town to take care of some business. And Jesus says to her, why don't you give me a drink? Which every mother in the room just went, Jesus didn't say please. Did you notice that? You ever notice that? But he, he said, give me a drink. And she, I'm sure he said it nicely, though, you know, with the right tone. Not just, give me a drink, woman. I'm sure it wasn't anything like that. But otherwise, he would have gotten water all over him, right? Even then. She's shocked because he is, she says, what are you even doing talking to me? You're a Jew. You don't talk to us. I'm a woman. I'm from Samaria. That's two strikes, which is worth three in their world. Why are you even talking to me? It's a shocking moment to her that is, is hard for us really to grasp. Maybe a, a closer example would be, say, 1954 at a diner. And a white guy walks over to the side of the diner that's only for African Americans and sits down and asks the African American woman sitting next to him, hey, could you get me a glass of water? It would be a different circumstance than what would happen if you just asked somebody today, wouldn't it? Maybe we can relate that way. Maybe it's like, you know, some of you that are born and raised here in early having to go to Bangs and ask for somebody a glass of water. Would be 
would be for Tanya, you know. She grew up in Goldthwaite when they were rivals, and it's still a little hard for her to drive through there, you know. She gets, I have to go through a little quickly, which is hard because you know they like to catch you in things. But, you know, I, I try not to, to linger too long or she breaks out in hives. You know, that, that, just that, that sort of, you know, otherness that we have sometimes as barriers between us. And she had lived a life always being an other. And then circumstances in her life made her an even lesser other. Maybe that's even a better way to put it than other. She's a lesser. Samaritans and Jews have a history that was, that was at one time one. Uh, the whole situation of the Samaritans, we won't go into all the history this morning, but that whole situation was because of the divided kingdom of Israel. When the northern tribes chased after other gods and everything else, and God punished them for that, one of the long-lasting consequences was a kingdom that stood so divided that, that they didn't even worship together anymore. And in Samaria, they had set up a, a false alternative temple with false alternative traditions and understandings and everything else. And it had become a mix of Judaism and idolatry. And that idolatry was never, ever really fully gotten out of there to the point that at one point, there was actually a golden calf in their temple. And you would think if you knew anything about Jewish history, there's no way you'd go that far. But they went that far. And so to a Jew living in Jerusalem, trying to do everything according to God's will, to look to the north at those people who, who now intermixed with other nations and other gods and everything else, to look at those people was to see first and foremost above everything else the unfaithful. The people who were wrong. The people who didn't get it right. The people who, who had gone out and, and violated the very first and second commandments of God that were given at Mount Sinai. And so there was always that barrier. There was that angst. That got built upon by other layers then of prejudice and pride and everything else that happens whenever we start to see someone in another place or of another lineage or of another race as somehow less than ourselves. And so that just kept building and building and building until Jesus sits at a well with a woman who is an other, a lesser than himself in her own eyes. She had bought into the identity. Why are you even talking to me? You guys don't, you don't talk to us. We're not worthy of a conversation with you. You're better than us in your own eyes. Why, why would you even bother with me? And I don't even know all of the mood or the tone that she said that with? You know, did she react insulted? Did she react angry? Was it only shock? Was it only surprise? Was it just curiosity? We really don't know what all was running through her heart in the first few seconds of this conversation, but she knew that it was an odd conversation to have because it's the first thing that she brings up. Jesus, the first thing He brings up is the idea of, uh, you know, give me a glass of water. She says... You know, why are you asking me? He says, actually, if you knew who I was, if you only knew, you'd actually be asking me for water. At which point, she has to be going, okay, this isn't even making sense anymore. I don't get what in the world. You know, you kind of put yourself in their shoes and you can understand why people were confused by Jesus because a lot of times, you know, he knows where the conversation's going. We might have read it before, so we might know where it's going. But if you're sitting there hearing it for the first time, you're sitting there going... Jesus is kind of confusing sometimes. And, you know, well, if you only knew, you'd be, you'd be asking me for water. 
Why would I be asking you for water? You just asked me for water. Where is this going? That's what I think every time I read this. It's just the oddest little thing he does there just to kind of get her curiosity even deeper. But he says, again, if you knew who it was, you'd ask me. He says, I would give you living water. Living water to a Jewish mind had a meaning already. You know, we could try and figure out what we think it means, but to them it had a meaning. She immediately thinks of two things. Water that is running. It can't be stagnant. It's water that, that is living. You know, it's flowing through a river, a stream, a brook, something like that, but it can't be stagnant, stale water with no inlet or outlet. And so even when they would have to use living water for ceremonies, they would have these storage tanks, but it had to have an in and an out so that, that water remained living water and stayed fresh and not stagnant. And that was the practical idea that would have come to her mind. The spiritual idea that would have come to her mind was that living water always represented eternal life and eternity. So she hears these two things. I would give you living water. It seems like from her answer, she goes with the first more than the second. He means, I'm going to give you eternal life. She means, or thinks he means, I know a really good stream you wouldn't have to dig so far with that bucket you got. You know, and she's thinking that even sounds good. And maybe if he knows another source of water, she won't have to keep coming at odd times to avoid the embarrassment of all the gossips who met at the well at the normal times. Maybe, she's got a, maybe he's got some secret little spot where he can get water. You know, her curiosity is going. I'm sure several things race through her mind. But Jesus is speaking to something deeper. Pascal is also often quoted as having said, there exists in everyone a God-shaped vacuum or a God-shaped hole that only God can fill. He actually never said that exact quote. What he said was actually deeper and a little bit longer. That's basically, it's a summary of his quote that has become the quote in people's minds. This is what he actually said. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in a man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only by, with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. I love what he says here much better than the simplified quote. Because he starts by talking about that what we really long for is something that we once actually had. We had in the Garden of Eden fellowship with God that was so close that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening. They actually got to go for walks in the evening with God. How cool is that? Can you imagine? And can you imagine getting to... You know, we always talk about our questions, but this week there was... Uh, the, the revelation that scientists believe they've now come to understand the idea of gravity... Well, understand the beginning of the idea of gravitational waves. They think they're a thing. That's about as far as they've gotten. They think they're actually a thing and not just an Einstein theory. And so you've probably seen a lot of the explanations of gravitational waves and things like that and, and heavy objects with great mass and, and all of that stuff. Or maybe not. Maybe you flipped the channel and went over to SpongeBob. I wouldn't blame you. Whatever it was, you didn't do that, did you? No, she didn't do that. The uh, Bugs Bunny. You went to something. Three Stooges. That's what I would have as the best alternative to gravitational waves. Anyway, 
Uh, all of that, that understanding points us to more questions. What are things really like? What is really there? Right? Wouldn't it be cool if you could walk with God in the evening and say, you know, Lord, I just saw on TV this idea of gravitational waves and they think blah, 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 blah. And have God go, <laughs> no. <laughs> and, then, and then just tell you, you know, let me tell you how it really goes. And it's God. I assume he could just like do this. And then there's like a screen showing you. Wouldn't that be awesome? Adam and Eve got that. I wonder if Adam ever said, you know, I wasn't here for the first several days. You mind if I got a replay? You ever wonder about that? Because we would. We would. But that kind of that close a fellowship, first few days of creation, Adam and Eve, you know, by the second or third day, she's like, God, you invented anything for his breath yet? He's like, yeah, over there in the garden, there's this stuff called mint. You know what I mean? It's just all these handy little things. Wouldn't that be awesome? What Pascal gets at is it was there. This isn't a dream. This isn't an if or a what if. This was there. And that this, this void that we all fill and, and, and fill with, with horrible things often. It's not a void that is just a what if. It's a void that is a we once had that. And God intended us to keep that. And only God can fill that. And so here is this woman at the well part of a society, the Samaritan society, that had wandered away from God as a whole. Some of them longed for what they had had. They longed back for a time when they knew and had some solid foundation of what it meant to live with God, to worship God, to serve God, to be blessed by God. And she brings that up here in a minute. Let's look more at the text. <clears throat> Let's go to verse uh, 16. Now, let me go back up to 15 just for a little bit of context. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus answered, You're right in saying you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now isn't your husband. What you said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> and that, wouldn't that be, Ooh, I think, I think you know things you're not supposed to know. How did you know that? I never met you or told you my story before. You must be a prophet. Because he says, and, and again, Jesus knows what he's up to. Do you not just see that God can have a little bit of mischief every now and then? He didn't have to do it that way, did he? And yet he did. Why don't you go get your husband? Why did he do that? God can be mischievous at times. She said, I don't have one. He goes, you're right. You've had five. You don't have one now, but you've had some. And he doesn't say it in a mocking way. He doesn't say it in a judgmental way. He just says it to show her I know you. I know about you. I'm, I, I know more than you think I know. And she acknowledges, yeah, I think you do. So she asks a question. I perceive that you're a prophet. So where do you think we ought to be worshiping? 
What do you, why do you think she does that? I am convinced that this is all just, you know, he just got a little too close to home. Here's this guy. She doesn't understand. He's been a little weird and mysterious anyway. And then, the, then he, he starts talking about really personal stuff, and she seems to go, mm, can we talk about something else? Let's talk about something else. You know, we say we're supposed to worship one place. You people say we're supposed to worship another. Which, which place are we supposed to worship? What, what, how's that supposed to work? All Jesus wanted her to see was he actually cared about her and he came out specifically to talk to her. It wasn't a chance occasion. He knew her, he cared for her, and he met her where she was at a place and a time that shows that she was there because she was embarrassed or frustrated, maybe even angry about where she was in life. Jesus met her there anyway. They look too close to home. She asks a question. Often, we will talk about then what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth, but we can talk about that another time because that was actually, in this conversation, a distraction. Jesus very respectfully answered it, which tells us something about him. I know you're trying to dodge the question, but I respect the question. So he gives her a good answer and then brings it back. Our fathers worship, this is verse 20, on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people. <clears throat> Pardon me. For this Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. And at that point, you've got to really wonder what goes through her head. I mean, she's already figured out this guy is something more than just a normal guy. He seems to be speaking for God. He just knows too much. And she brings up the topic of the Messiah and says, well, I, I know. And it almost again seems like, a, well, you're okay. I'm not sure I fully understand your answer. I don't know that I get all of that. But, but the Messiah, he'll explain it better than you just did. Probably. You know, this is kind of the way we are as humans, right? He'll explain it better than you did, only to find out that the you was God himself. You know, there's that little thing. And that's what happens. She says, I'll get it later. I, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure the Messiah will explain it, and I'll get it later. And then he says, he's here, and it's me. And she realizes that she's face to face with the Christ. And she gets it. And all of a sudden, all the pieces start to fall into place. We learn from this both that He meets us where we are, but there's more to it than just that. They talk about truth. They talk about the, or He talks to her about truth, and the importance of worshiping in truth and in spirit. And there's a truth that He wants to deal with with her. And this is what happens. Just then, the disciples came back and they marveled that He was talking with a woman. See, they're shocked too. What's He doing talking with a lady? What in the world? They marveled that he was talking with a woman, 
I lost my spot when I looked up. Where'd it go? Verse 20. I'm not in verse 20, and that's why I'm not finding it. Let's go get down to verse 27 and 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. So the disciples come back and go, what in the world are you doing talking to her? She's too excited to stick around and hear the explanation. She runs off town and says, you've got to come hear this guy. Everything I ever did, which tells us probably longer conversation, we had bits and pieces, kind of the cliff notes of the conversation. Everything I ever did, he knew about it. He knew about number one, number two, number three, number four, number five. He even knew about you, <laughs> you know, pointing across the room. And the implication here is not just he knew about me, it was he knew the truth about me and he still cared. He knew the truth about me and he still, he still actually had compassion on me. He still wanted to share with me eternal life. He wanted to share with me about this living water. And you wouldn't believe it. Nobody has cared about me since number one and number two. They've all shunned me. They've treated me like dirt. I had to go get water at different times of the day to work around the gossip schedule. But this guy actually cared. And he says, he's the Messiah, and I'm telling you, the things that he says and does, I believe it. You've got to come check it out. And so they do. And when they all go out there, long story short, when they all go out there, they say to him, you know what? She told us that you were incredible and that you were the Messiah, and we believe that. But let me tell you, after hearing you and seeing you and watching you, we believe because of you. What they see. You know, we have nothing here that talks about him performing any miracle before her or before them at this particular point. They saw Jesus face to face. They saw a Messiah who knew them and still cared. Who knew every flaw, who knew every infidelity, who knew every failure and still loved them and still cared about them and still offered them eternal life despite what other people would say about them despite what social barriers there may have been, despite what racial barriers there may have been, none of that mattered. He was Jesus. He met her and them right where they were. And He even knew the truth about who they were. And His compassion wasn't hindered by the truth, but neither did His compassion ignore the truth. When He tells her about her life, He's telling her about mistakes. Now, we don't know. We do not know whether those mistakes were all hers or all those guys' mistakes. She may have been a great woman treated badly five, six times. It could have been 50, 50, 60, 40, 70, 30. We have no idea. And truthfully, if it were any of our business, we'd know, so we don't, so it's not. Right? But Jesus knew. And it didn't stop Him from showing compassion. It didn't stop him from saying, I want to give you eternal life. Those things in her mind would have held her back. I can never be would have been the voice in her head, but it wasn't the voice from Jesus' mouth. It was you can be. You will be. Did you notice in his use of pronouns when he talked about there will be a day when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or that mountain? He says, I know you're going to be a worshiper. I know you're one of the, those who worship in spirit and truth. I see this. You're one of mine. Now let me tell you a little bit about your future, because you are. And that excited her, and it thrilled her. 
in all of this, if you read that, I don't know if you can always see it. Sometimes I walk in front of that and I don't realize the text is behind me. But uh, he seeks our justification, not our justifications. He wants us to be redeemed. He wants us to be restored. He wants us to be forgiven. He wants us to be justified. To be seen by God as though we had never even made those mistakes. Pure, clean, and washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. He doesn't want to hear excuses. But He also wants to wash away any reason for excuse we might have for not coming to Him. Because He cares about us that much. We also learn this, that God's grace is boundless. There are people who would tell you that God's grace ended at the the end of her first marriage. There are people who would tell you that it ended at the second or the third or the fourth. They would tell you that it ended when the man she was with was not her own. Jesus told her, I will give you living water. I know about you. It's not stopping me. I will give you eternal life. I will give you joy that will well up like a spring within you. I will give you grace that will well up endlessly within you. When you walk with me as in the light, as I walk in the light, First John 1, he tells her, essentially, my blood will purify you from all sin. And we will be in fellowship. You and me and you and me. And nothing you've done will stand in the way because of my grace. Brennan Manning. If you've never read anything by Brennan Manning, I would encourage you to. You know, you start with the ragamuffin gospel or God's uh, it's furious longing or furious pursuit. I forget the exact title. Just start with the ragamuffin gospel. You'll remember that one, right? Start there and read through what he says. I'm going to share with you a quote from a sermon that he preached one time that really gets Jesus in this moment. The compassion of Jesus is the compassion of Almighty God. And Jesus says to your heart and mind, don't ever be so foolish as to measure my compassion for you in terms of your compassion for one another. Don't ever be so silly as to compare your thin, pallid, wavering, moody, depending on smooth circumstances, human compassion with mine, for I am God as well as man. When you read in the Gospels that Jesus was moved with compassion, it is saying that His gut was wrenched, His heart torn open, and the most vulnerable part of His being laid bare. The ground of all being shook. The source of all life trembled. The heart of all love burst open. And the unfathomable depths of the relentless tenderness was laid bare. Your Christian life and mine don't make any sense unless in the depth of our beings we believe that Jesus not only knows what hurt us, but knowing seeks us out whatever our poverty, whatever our pain. His plea to His people is come now wounded, frightened, angry, lonely, empty, and I'll meet you where you live. And I'll love you as you are, not as you should be. Because you are never going to be as you should be. Do you really believe this? With all the wrong turns you made in your past, the mistakes, the moments of selfishness, dishonesty, and degraded love, do you really believe 
that Jesus Christ loves you? Do you really believe it? Not, only, not the person next to you, not the church, not the world, but that He loves you. He loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity. That He loves you in the morning sun and the evening rain, without caution, regret, boundary, limit, no matter what's gone down, He can't stop loving you. That is the Jesus of the Gospels. That's the Jesus that this woman met at the well who knew everything she'd done and it could not turn His love away from her. It couldn't make an excuse not to love her. And this is God's love for you. And He speaks to you this morning that same message and says, so come Follow me. I want you to die to all those mistakes. I want you to die to all those infidelities. I want you to die to all that stuff. As you are buried with Christ in the waters of baptism, I want to raise you to a life that is new so that within you my Spirit, my Word, and my Son will well up as eternal life like living water. And you will never thirst again. If that is what you thirst for, if like Pascal you've come to realize that's the void you've been trying to fill with everything else that never worked, we encourage you to come and be baptized into Christ, to lay your life down before Him, to believe that He loves you beyond all loves.